Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? All right, if you have a Bible, open it to Romans chapter 11. And if you don't, I would really encourage you to grab one of the Bibles you can find in the rack in front of you and open it to Romans 11. I think you can find the page numbers there of the Bibles that are in front of you if you're not familiar with Romans. This morning, we find ourselves at the end of Romans chapter 11. For the, since January of 2017, two years ago when we started Romans, we have been working through this book that is, I think, the most thorough explanation of what God is doing to reconcile people to himself through his son. It's the clearest, most exhaustive teaching in the whole Bible as far as one book is concerned. And up to this point, Paul has been outlining and explaining this gospel to the Roman church. And we end, we conclude his argument with the last four verses of Romans chapter 11. And then in chapter 12, he transitions from this grand theology to application into real life. But this morning, we're going to look at Paul's doxology. And this word doxology is a word that means the worship of God, a, a, a worship response to God. And this portion of Scripture is one of the most famous in all of Romans, one of the most beautiful. I think, I think the verses that we're going to read today are a kind of paradigm, a lens through which believers in Jesus should look at all of life. Now, the Bible's full of truth. Every word in the Bible is true. And much of the Bible is about specific things and specific applications of what God has done. But every now and again, there will be a passage that lifts our eyes and gives us a kind of perspective, a lens through which we can look at all of life. And that's what this text is this morning. So let me read Romans 11, verses 33 through 36. And then what we're going to do, because this, this text is a response to the 11 chapters that have come before it. We are going to summarize the message of Romans up to this point. <laughs> so buckle your seatbelts. Let's, let's read Romans 11, verses 33 through 36. I think you'd be really helped, because we're going we're gonna to look at these 11 chapters. I think you'd be helped if you had your copy of God's Word open, and you can see these verses for yourself. Listen to what, listen to what the Apostle Paul says. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Verse 36 for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us understand this text. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for the gathering of your people. Thank you for every soul that is here this morning. Those of 
us that know you as our Savior, that are trusting in the finished work of Jesus, his perfect life, his sacrificial death, his victorious resurrection, his ever-present reigning ascension right now, ruling over all things. Lord, thank you for those that are trusting in Jesus. For our friends who may be in this room that are not yet trusting in Jesus, Lord, would you open their eyes to the beauty of this gospel that Paul has preached and written about in Romans. May the theology of Romans 1 through 11 do more than just settle in our hearts as knowledge, but may it produce in us worship. Theology is meant to produce doxology. The right study of your word is meant to produce in your people the right worship of who you are. May we not be cold-hearted people this morning. May we be humbled. May our affections be stirred. May, May you let us see afresh the glory of the gospel, the greatness of salvation, the freeness of grace, the sinfulness of sin, the glory of heaven, the beauty of Christ, the wonder of our triune God can... Lord, can we see that this morning, I pray. We need more than tips and principles. We need to behold our God as we have sung. And when we see you rightly, you, you, you transform us from one degree of glory to another. So, Lord, do that, I pray, and help me as I attempt to help these people I love. In Jesus' name, amen. The Westminster Confession of Faith, one of the great documents in the history of the church, written in the 1600s by a bunch of English reformers, says this, or not the Confession of Faith, but the Westminster Catechism, the first question, says this, what is the chief end of man? In other words, what are we here for? Why do we exist? Why were you made? And the answer to that question is, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That's why you exist. That's why I exist. And I think that's what Paul is concluding here. Is that everything, not just man, but everything exists for the glory of God. That's his response to what he has written. The theology of chapters 1 through 11, the truths about God are taking us somewhere. They are meant to produce in us, the first century Roman church, and all of God's people that read this word from then on, it is meant to produce in us a response of worship. And by worship, I don't just mean merely singing together as a congregation, although that is one beautiful aspect of worship. I mean the, the giving of all of our lives in response to all that God is. And imagine yourself, if you were in Rome in about A.D. 70 or so, and you were in a house church there, fearing the persecution of the Roman Empire, and this letter would be circulating around the church in Rome, and you would gather together on the Lord's Day, and somebody would open up the parchment, whatever this was written on, whatever copy they had of this letter to the Romans, and somebody would begin to read chapter 1, and they would read the letter 
all the way through. Imagine the, the intensity and the glory and the power of hearing what Paul has written to you in your context in the first century of Rome as you're fearing persecution and you're wondering whether or not God is good for his word. And after whoever's reading gets to the end of this glorious theology, Paul ends with this exclamation, this doxology, this, this hymn of praise. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. For from him and to him and through him are all things. To him be glory forever. So in order to understand that rightly, to prime our hearts to be able to say that with Paul, I think we need to remember what he said. So move over to the left to Romans chapter 1. What is Paul's burden in this letter to the Romans? Paul is defending the righteousness of God. Paul is really vindicating the fact that God who is holy could save anybody that is unrighteous. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, we see where the Apostle Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Verse 17, for in it, meaning the gospel, the good news, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Remember, well, of course you remember, it was two years ago when we went over that verse. Remember that Martin Luther, the great reformer in the early 1500s, read this verse before his conversion, and it terrified him because when he read the phrase in verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed, he was reading it as the holiness, the character, the righteousness, the majesty of who God is. And certainly that is true. But Luther instinctively knew that he was not righteous and that God was righteous, and the gap between the two terrified him. But then Luther, as he stared and meditated on this verse and read through Romans over and over and over again, realized that that's not what Paul was speaking about in this sense in the righteousness of God. Not the righteousness of the character of God, although that is certainly true. But here in verse 17, Paul was talking about the righteousness that God gives, the righteousness that he gives people through Christ. And so Luther turned in his mind. He saw this not being something to dread, but a gift to be received. And he said, when I saw it, the gates of paradise swung open for me. And the point that Paul starts with in Romans chapter 1 is that God is going to save a people by giving, by giving a righteousness that is not ours, something that's a gift for us. And we need this righteousness because as he begins in verse 18 of Romans uh, 1 through chapter 2 and into chapter 3, he says that the wrath of God, the wrath of God is revealed against all mankind, all people. All people everywhere have rebelled against God. We have thumbed our noses at the Creator and said that we will do it our way. That's what the rest of Romans chapter 1 and 2 is about. And not only have all people done this, but even God's people in the Old Testament, the Jews who have been given a special revelation of who God is, 
have disobeyed God. And what has that left mankind, what state has that left mankind in? Romans 1 and 2, the indictment against all humanity. It's left us all guilty, and that's Paul's conclusion. In Romans chapter 3, look at verse 9, verse 10. It says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is on, under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Friends, we don't instinctively view ourselves this way, but this is what the Bible says is our nature. And it goes on to say, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. That's all of us whether it's a law written on tablets or written on our hearts, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. So friends, Romans chapter 3, midway through, is this, is this all-exhaustive conclusion that all of us are guilty, no matter our heritage, no matter our upbringing, even if we grew up in church, even if we grew up in utter, obvious rebellion to God, every human being by nature, as he concludes in verse 23, has fallen short of the glory of God. Friends, we are in a predicament. We need God who is righteous, but we have no righteousness in our own. And that's what Paul begins to then give us the good news in verse 21. He says, but now, two of the sweetest words in all of the Bible, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. This law and the prophets of the Old Testament are, are pointing towards this righteousness of God. And what is this righteousness of God? He goes on to say that it is Christ's sacrifice, Christ himself, his life, his death, his resurrection. And God has, look at verse 23, he has, verse 24, we are all justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 25 whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. So how does God solve the dilemma of human unrighteousness? How will he save people and still maintain his holiness? How will God bridge the gap that we cannot bridge? He comes to us. God the Son comes to us and lays down his perfect life on the cross to bear the wrath of God that was our biggest problem. And back in Romans chapter 1 verse 18, and extinguish it, absorb it, remove it. That's Paul's point in verses 21 through 26. And now God maintains his justice, but he's also the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. So how can people be saved? By grace. By grace. By God giving what we need. By God doing it. By God sending his son. By Jesus absorbing the wrath of God for us and rising in victory. By grace. 
And when God gives that grace, he gives faith. And where is that faith placed? It's placed specifically in what God the Son has done to appease God the Father so that we can be reconciled to him. So we, friends, are saved by grace through faith in Christ. That's Paul's conclusion in Romans chapter 3. And then Romans chapter 4. Just in case anybody that was listening to him in the first century who might have been Jewish, who's thinking, yeah, but you know what, I'm, I'm of a particular moral religious group of people, and I am a child of Abraham, and Abraham, didn't, wasn't he this great Old Testament figure that pleased God? And Paul says, oh, wait a minute now, even Abraham, Father Abraham, even him, this great pillar of God's people. Even Abraham was not saved by his works, but by his faith. That's what chapter four is all about. Look at the beginning of chapter four. He says, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? Meaning, was he right with God because he was a Jew or because God, because there was something in him? No, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So Paul's point in Romans 4 is that even Abraham was not saved by his own works, by his own righteousness, but by the faith that God gave him. God awakened Abraham's heart. Abraham was then enabled to believe And Abraham believed, and the righteousness of God was his, not by works, but by faith. And so the application for us today is we may be thinking, you know, I'm a pretty good person. I'm a moral American. I grew up in the church in the South. Certainly God is somehow kind of inclined to, you know, give me the benefit of the doubt. And the answer to that is no. Is friends, if you were a good little church kid who had every little VBS attendance record and you're a member of this church, even you, you came in the same way that the worst, most obvious public sinner has come. You've come through grace, through faith in Christ. Now thank God that in his kind providence he spared you from a lot of pain. But you came in the same way. You were just as far from God as the obvious criminal who God radically saved when he was 40. Nobody stands before God with anything to commend themselves. God may use your heritage. God may use your upbringing. Praise God, I hope he does. But all those things are just means of his grace. For some people, he uses godly parents and a gospel-preaching church. Other people, he uses a prison cellmate to share the gospel. But friends, it's all grace. So whether you're Abraham or whether you are the most obvious rebel, you come by grace. By grace, through faith in Christ. And what does this grace through faith in Christ produce? Oh man, Romans five, come on now. Romans five. I mean, this is a, 
This is a Rocky Balboa chapter. And by that I mean you want to cut off your hoodie at the shoulders. You want to run through the streets of Philadelphia up the steps. And you want to raise your hands in victory after you read this bad boy. (laughs) You can take on anybody. Ivan Drago, Apollo Creed, Mr. T, anybody. (laughs) The devil and all of his minions that whisper in your ear. Because of this grace through faith in Christ that we've been saved, what what does it produce in us? We have peace with God. Let me just read it, first few verses. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we also have obtained access by faith into his grace in which we now stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who's been given to us. Notice that, notice what's going on in those first five verses. God's love is poured into you even though you are going through sufferings because your sufferings are producing in you something that is eternal and not just for these 80 years. So friends, do not take whatever you're going through right now as a sign of somehow God's absence or lack of love for you. God pours his love into your life in the midst of your suffering so that you can show the surpassing worth of Christ. And he concludes chapter 5 with this beautiful picture of these two men, Adam and Christ. And he says that there are only two types of people. There are those who are in Adam All of us were in Adam and sin came through Adam and all of us have descended from Adam and sin brings death, separation from God. But for those that are in Christ, we are in Christ through his grace by faith and when we are in Christ, we have a new master and now grace reigns. Now grace reigns and we have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his son as Colossians 1 says and now grace reigns. And we are in Adam, or we're in Christ. We're no longer in Adam, we are in Christ. And nothing can snatch us from his hand. And then he concludes in Romans chapter 6, because he may, he's anticipating knowing that some people will say, well, now that grace reigns, I can do whatever I want to do. And he says, no, 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 no. Verse 4 of Romans 6, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For Listen to verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And because of this, verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. And so chapter 6 is all about Christian that grace reigns in your life, but grace is not an excuse to continue in your sin, that those whose hearts have truly been made new by God are now enabled to fight sin. To as verse 12 says, let not sin reign in your mortal body to make it obey its passions, but fight sin with a new heart and the spirit that dwells in you. Fight it because you're in Christ. And Romans chapter 7 is all about this relationship that the Christian now has to the law. And he says that the law 
The law, which was our old master, was just a tutor to bring us to Christ, but now we serve in a new way of the Spirit. And now the law of God is no longer written on tablets to accuse us, but Christ has canceled the record that was against us and now has written this new law on our hearts. And this new law is just really amplifying all that this old law was all about to lead us into obedience. So now we are people that live by the law of the Spirit. And in Romans chapter 8, Paul concludes, Romans chapter 8 now, I mean, if Romans 5 was Balboa, um, man, what, what, is, what is Romans 8? I, 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 it's, what other great Italian-American can we think about now other than Rocky Balboa? <laughs> Vince Lombardi, I don't know. If, it's Romans 8 is the peak, it's the summit of the highest mountain of Scripture. Paul concludes that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is now, because of what Christ has done for you, there's no condemnation because Christ has set you free. God did what you could not do He condemned sin in the flesh, the very flesh of the Son of God, by laying, this is what Isaiah says, by laying the iniquity. Think about this, think about this. Every, if you're a believer, think about this. Consider, consider what God has done with your sin. This is what Paul is reacting to at the end of Romans 11. The depth of the wisdom and knowledge and riches of God. Consider what God has done with your sin, past, present, and future. The punishment that should have been yours He lays it on Jesus' shoulders on the cross. And Jesus takes it. He satisfies it. He propitiates it. He absorbs the wrath of God. He removes it as far as the east is from the west. He cancels it. He, he, He cancels the power of sin for you. It's gone. And now, although there may be effects and residual consequences, as far as eternity is concerned, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because of what Jesus has done. Friends, we are Americans that are awash with temporal anxiety. And our culture is pushing us to think that what's going to happen in the next six months or the next ten years is of utmost importance, and it's not. And the Bible is continually trying to lift our eyes to see that our greatest need is right standing with God, and only Christ has done it. And if Christ has done it, then, friends, you are free to give your life away. You're free. Because if this is true, then he concludes in verse 31, what can this world do to me? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also give us all things? Oh, come on. Friends, this is easy to agree with on a Sunday morning in a room full of people that agree with you, but this is hard, this is hard to live out in the quiet of your own mind in the middle of the week. 
Isn't it? Friends, we, we have to tattoo this verse on our hearts and minds. He who did not spare his own son, how will he not with him give us all things? And that all things, friends, is not a promise of some earthly prosperity. It is the promise that what really matters, communion, eternity, fellowship with God in his kingdom forever, is yours. So if that is yours, you are now free to give your life away to serving him. Because if you know your future is absolutely rock solid secure, then what can this world do to me? And I, man, I need that. I need that because the fear of man, the fear of the future will come and whisper in your ear as soon as you drive out of this parking lot. It will. There are people in this room that are facing very serious things that threaten their immediate future. You're facing sickness. You're facing the breakup of a relationship. You're facing an uncertain economic future. You're facing a whole host of things that I don't know and can't name. But friends, this is truer and greater than all those things. And this is what produces this doxology in Paul in Romans 11. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing. Neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. Not even death. In fact, when we see the message of Romans, death isn't, is no longer our, our, our enemy. It turns into God's servant to bring us into what God has planned for us from eternity. Friends, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. And that brings us to Romans 9, 10, and 11 that we've been looking at for these past few weeks. What about the Jews? Well, what it means to truly be a Jew is not about ethnicity. It's not about who you came from. It's about what God alone can do in your heart. God has a people. And what it truly means to be Jewish is not to be a descendant of some ethnicity, but to be, to be chosen by God, to be made alive by Him, to be a believer in Jesus. And so God's Word has not failed. All the promises that He made to His people in the Old Testament will be fulfilled in His people. And oh, by the way, and this is Romans 11, all of those ethnic Jews who disobeyed God and have rejected Christ. He's coming back around. And because he's so gracious, he's going to save a great multitude of them before the end of the day. And how's he going to do it? Not because they're Jews, but he's going to save them through Jesus, this deliverer who comes from Zion. In other words, God can be trusted The gospel is glorious. Sin is wicked. And Jesus alone can save. And at the end of this, it brings us to the end of Romans 11. What does Paul conclude? Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. 
For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. As we conclude, three brief reflections, three brief truths. First is that we can trust God's wisdom. We can trust God's wisdom. Look at what Paul says there in verse 33. The depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. There's nothing underneath God's wisdom. Underneath every circumstance in your life is the wisdom of God. Underneath every... And friends, I have spent a lot of time thinking about this, about how God's sovereignty interacts with our responsibility, about how God is never culpable for our sin. God is not culpable for evil, but yet how God is so sovereign that in ways that are unsearchable to us, how even evil, even my sin, is somehow providentially part of God's plan and he's, he's working it all for his glory and my good. And he can be trusted and his ways are, are inscrutable. In other, in other words, I cannot scrutinize God's ways. So friends, consider your life. Consider, consider the thing that is most chaotic, that is most anxiety-filled, that is most troubling right now. God's wisdom in your life, if you are a believer, can be utterly trusted even if you cannot trace the logic and his ways. In fact, you will never be able to because Paul says here that they are unsearchable. If if you could trace them out like a connect-the-dot little illustration in, in the doctor's office, then, then God would be scrutable. He would be analyzable. He, we, we could figure him out, and he would cease to be God. But we can trust his wisdom even though we cannot trace his ways because as we reflect on all that he has done in the scope of human history to redeem a people and make it sure and certain through his son, we can trust it. We can stand on it. We can fasten ourselves to this gospel. We can trust God's wisdom. A second reflection is that God owes us nothing. God owes us nothing. Look at verses 34 and 35. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? In other words, God is not obligated to save any of us. God is not obligated to act on any of our behalfs. We are programmed, I think, as Americans to come to God expecting our rights because we're Americans, right? Now, that may be a very good way. In fact, I think it is a very good way to deal with one another on a horizontal level, but it's not the way we come to God. We can't come to God. And friends, I mean, I've been a Christian now. This March, March 16th of this year, 2019, will be the 30th anniversary of when I I think I first heard the gospel, March 16th, 1989. And I think sometime around that time, I became a believer. So for 
30-some years, I think I've been a believer. I, I think I've grown in my faith. I, I think I'm a relatively, I have a relatively mature understanding of the Christian life and, and the Bible. But I find myself still just subconsciously drifting into this notion that somehow, if I've had a good week serving God, that somehow he is obligated, I mean, I just uttering these things just makes me embarrassed, that somehow he's, he's sort of, he kind of owes it to me for things to go well. Is anybody else like that? I mean, I forget all those times that I was just totally forgetting about God, doing whatever I want. But if I have a pretty good week, pretty good sermon, pretty good whatever, you know, God, I mean, come on. How about a little, let's bear a little fruit from that right now so I can see it, huh? Come on. Make that apple grow because I want to taste it now. And, and, and friends, that's, that's who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid why is seeing this so important? Because when we see that he owes us nothing, but has given us everything in Christ, that should produce in us a joy, a worship. He owes me nothing, nothing, but he's given me everything like we just read in Romans 8. He's given me everything, and it's free. It's not conditioned upon my performance. Therefore, it can't be lost based on my performance. If you're a Christian, consider how good God has been in saving you and let that produce in you worship. If you're not yet a believer, consider how he has brought you here to hear this very thing. And consider the pure freedom and joy of knowing that God doesn't save you because of your righteousness, but because of Christ's. And if you will look away from yourself into him, you too can be saved. And then finally, verse 36, everything exists for the glory of God. Everything exists for the glory of God. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Everything that's exhaustive. Everything that is. There's not a president. There's not a country. There's not a dictator. There's not a government. There's not a financial market. There's not, a, there's not a military, there's not a battalion, there's not a, there's not a terrorist, there's not a false religion, there's not a cancer cell, there's not a blessing, there's not a marriage, there's not a child, there's not anything in this world that exists apart from the purpose of displaying the glory of God. Everything that exists, Proverbs 16 says, even the wicked is for the day of destruction, for the purpose of God. And so when we see this all-encompassing truth, friends, we, we, are, we are free to make our lives not about ourselves. Because now I am freed when I see this truth. And friends, this is a battle for all of us. I am I am freed from my addiction to being a glory thief. 
we all want to be made much of. And that is a, that, that appetite can never be satisfied. But when we see the beauty of the gospel, that we, we deserve nothing, but God has given us everything, and that true joy exists in making much of God in our lives and not being made much of ourselves, because from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be glory forever. And when God is glorified, that's actually more joyful for me because it frees me from this addiction that is never satisfied to self-glory. Then I can say with Paul, oh, the depth of the wisdom of God. Amen and amen. And that brings us back to the Westminster Catechism. What is the chief end of every person in this room? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. What does that look like in your life? Where are you prone to trying to steal God's glory? Where are you wanting to be made much of? Where are you depressed because the world is not applauding you? Look up and see this text, see this truth, and be satisfied in God. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgment and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, help us to see this text, see this truth in one way or another all of us in this room are prone to seek our own glory we're prone to seek glory outside of you we're like the Pharisees in John who desired the glory of men more than the glory that comes from God Help us, Lord, to see that nothing will satisfy us apart from Christ. Help us, to, help us to be satisfied with this glorious gospel. And Lord, then give us, give us your Holy Spirit afresh to fight sin, to serve you, to give our lives away for your glory and for our joy. But I pray these things for, for the good of these people, for the glory of your name, for the salvation of any people in this room that did not know Jesus coming in. I pray that you would move in their hearts even now. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.